listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls, and welcome to this episode of Speech Bubble. It's your host, Aaron Broverman. And with me today, we have a very special guest. He's he's in from Ottawa for Fan Expo because it's Fan Expo weekend as we're recording this. I'm talking about Mark Shaneblum, and Mark is the creator of Northgard, Canada's first postmodern superhero. He also created Fleur de Lis, a Quebec-based superhero, uh, Canadiana, Angloman, which is sort of a political satire uh, superhero. So welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's, it's an honor to have you. You are pretty integral to the history of Canadian comics and Canadian superheroes uh, specifically, but I wanted to start with just the basics. When were you born? I was born in 1963. Okay. So I'm a cusper. I'm neither a boomer nor Generation X, so I'm right in the middle. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Montreal. Uh, when I was a very small child, we lived in uh, the Snowden area. And then we, when I got a little older, we moved to Cote St. Luke, very typically Jewish neighborhoods of Montreal. This is a traditionally, it's a Toronto podcast. Most of my guests are from Toronto, but you've spent a lot of time in Toronto. I right? have. Well, we had family here. We were here all the time. I've got lots of friends here and I've been in and out of Toronto my whole life. What got you into collecting comics? I actually never considered myself a collector in the, put it in a mile our bag with the backing board thing. I, I'm not organized enough to do that. I did it for a while and it kind of spoiled it for me. So I just bought them. I, I think it goes back to when we lived in a duplex on Westbury Avenue in Montreal and our landlord's son had this huge collection of what were then old comics in, in the basement. You know, they were all, you know, this was the late 1960s, early 1970s. And he had some, you know, DC science fiction and war comics and, you know, the other stuff mixed in there. Relatively few superheroes, oddly enough, but there were all sorts of things in there. Also, I grew up watching cartoons and, you know, when I was a kid, the big cartoons were Rocket Robin Hood and the Mighty Hercules. And I realized recently that, you know, I have a very strong affinity for Green Lantern with the power ring. And I, I think that may have to do going back even to the Mighty Hercules where he put this ring on his finger and was struck by lightning which was, of course, ripped off from Green Lantern, but I didn't know that at the time. And you're you're a creative person, and I know that a lot of creative people identify with Green Lantern because, you know, his power allows him to create, you know, whatever he wants. I, I think that's it. I think, I think none of us are going to become, you know, very few of us are Bruce Wayne and going to turn ourselves into a living weapon. We are not born on Krypton. We, we, we weren't bitten by a radioactive spider, and if we were, we would die. But Green Lantern, he's a more or less ordinary guy, even if he really is Chuck Yeager, you know, uh, the test pilot. But he has a weapon that, in theory, any of us could imagine wearing. Of course, in recent years, they've made the point that not anybody can just put it on and use it. But but I think that was that's where it comes from. It's like anybody could, in theory, be Green Lantern and, and use their willpower for, 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 the, for justice, you know? And, and I think that was reflected later in Northgard with the Uniban to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll get to that uh, yeah. pretty soon. Uh, what is your sort of affinity with superheroes? What got you into superheroes? It, well, I, th- I think it was in part those cartoons. Okay. I think it was in part growing up as a young Jewish kid in the post-war. I mean, all the characters were created by Jews, which is kind of odd since some people consider them to be fascist, which is not something I've ever really believed except in a few cases. 
I think I got into them for the same reason that Siegel and Schuster got into them. You know, they wanted, they felt powerless in a world that was turning against them and they wanted a sense of power and they wanted a sense of that justice could triumph. Uh, they were watching these things, you know, happen in, in um, Western Europe at the time. They were watching the Nazis rise. They were watching the Jews being persecuted. If you look at Batman, that could be even a more direct link, you know, in a way. I don't know. I'm not saying these were, this was necessarily top of mind for any of them, but it was it was there, I'm sure. And I was the typical nerdy kid picked on in school, which is such a cliche, I don't even have to bother expanding on it, you mm. know. But it was real. And oddly enough, it was in a Jewish school. But, you know, nevertheless. So I think it was an attraction to that. But I think it was also an attraction to the visual iconogra- iconography. Iconography. I got stuck there. Because I've always had, I'm also, I think, a, a frustrated artist. Like, I'm one of the very few people in my immediate family who doesn't draw. You know, my sister is a really good artist, so she became a lawyer. My, my mother, in late, late in life, has discovered that she's actually a really good artist. My late great uncle was a well-known painter and sculptor in Montreal. I can't draw, but I have the same affinity for the visual. And I always, I wanted to paint, I wanted to sculpt, I wanted to be a graphic designer. I don't have those skills. So, but I think the the really strong graphic imagery of those, those characters appealed to me also. Okay. So that leads into sort of the next question that I have, which is, how did you decide that you wanted to... Uh, make comics and try to do it like professionally what what got you into actually like making comics given that you don't have any uh artistic talents well i mean i think it goes back to a few things i when i was a small when i was a younger kid i had this idea i wanted to be a scientist you know i wanted to be uh one of the scientists like the ones i read about in the comic books but again i also don't have math you know and i have a you know i have very strange neurons and i don't have the attention span for for science. So it was a bit of a disappointment that I wasn't going to do that. But it was clear to me from a very young age that I was a writer. You know, I always wrote. I always loved writing. I was writing stories, you know, from the time I was five, you know, even if I was dictating them. And then later I was writing them. And I grew up in the era of the writer-artist in comics. I mean, I grew up in the 70s. I mean, there was always Jack Kirby, of course, but oddly enough, I was not a big Kirby fan as a kid because I found his style a little off-putting as a younger reader. But there were a lot of writers um, who influenced me, and there was, you know, early on, it was some of the DC writers like Elliot Magan and Carrie Bates and... Uh, you know, Julia Schwartz and, and, and that group. And then it was the Marvel writers like Marv Wolfman and um, David Michelini and all these guys. And I was thinking, these guys are writers. They don't draw. If I, if they can write comic books, so can I. Nice. And so I think that's where, and of course, at the same time, I was also getting into prose science fiction as well. It, you know, it was sort of a, a general direction. And I've always, you know, the characters were just coming to me, you know. Okay. So yeah, let's, let's get into uh, Northgard and all your characters. How did Northgard come to be? Well, I think it came in in separate stages. I always wanted to do superheroes. When I was a young kid, when I was in my teens, I created a character named Sunray, who was kind of the generic superhero every kid creates at the age of 13. But he had some of the elements and some of the characters even who were in Northgard were in in Sunray uh, in that the character Ron Cape was there, but he was the hero. And then, you know, I eventually made him a supporting character on the side. But in the interim, I had became very, I was always a sort of a Canadian nationalist at a time when it was considered really, really nerdy to be a Canadian nationalist. I mean, even more so than liking comic books. You know, if you wore a Maple Leaf t-shirt to school, you were made fun of because we just, that was what happened in those days. Mm -hmm. 
because we were just so unnationalist. To be a good Canadian was not to be a good Canadian, so to speak. Um, or to assimilate with America. Or something, yeah, or to, yeah, exactly. I the, the two things sort of came together. I also found out about the Canadian whites. There was the book by Patrick Hirsch and Michael Lubert, which was the great Canadian comic books, which talked about Nelvana and Johnny Canuck and The Wing and Nitro and all those guys from the, from the war era. I never saw much of those. All I saw was the few bits and pieces that were in the book, but it inspired me. And... And then, of course, Richard Cumley created Captain Canuck in the 70s when I was about 12 or 13. And I started corresponding with Richard. And he was very supportive. And he was really nice. And he, I interviewed him for my fanzine, Orion. And I, you know, I started a fanzine. And Richard, I, inter- Richard, I interviewed Richard. And I started writing Captain Canuck stories for Richard. Uh, I sent him one or two. And I think I set Sunray in the Captain Canuck universe just so I could team them up at some point, you know. So I set him in the what was then the future for no particular reason except that Captain Canuck was in the future. So Richard was doing Captain Canuck, but as Richard himself admits, he was learning, he was feeling his way. Richard wasn't a comic book guy at the beginning. He kind of came in it from a different direction. And I had all the Marvel Comics stuff I wanted to do with a Canadian superhero. So Northgard, I think, grew out of that. It was my, I wanted to do my own take on the Canadian superhero. And then over the years, I kind of refined the concept and, um, at one point, I think he was called Warrior, which later was a DC character. And people, and, and then I had came up with an idea for a superhero team called Northgard. And then someone said, but the team name is actually a better name for the character. And I went, that's true. Uh, with the second issue of my Orion magazine, uh, the comic artist Jeff Isherwood uh, and I got together. We both sent stuff into Captain Canuck's letter column and we met that way. And so Jeff drew a lot of stuff for the second issue of Orion and he drew uh, sketches, character sketches of Northgard and another character I created called the Red Ensign, who was a World War II Canadian character. There is now a Red Ensign that I have nothing to do with. It, it kind of went from there. Jeff was supposed to draw the first issue, but he became, he got work from Marvel and Archie and a number of other places. And so he was not available. And I met Gabrielle Morissette. And that's when we started talking about it seriously. That was when it was seriously becoming possible in the early to mid 80s to do your own comics. Before then, there was really no such thing. There were mainstream comics like Marvel and DC. There was the odd offshoot like Mad Magazine. And then there were the underground comics, which was a completely different kettle of fish about a lifestyle and a, and a culture I didn't know anything about. Like the Robert... Robert Crumb and Dope Comics and all those things that were... It was all about the counterculture and it still survived into the early 70s. It was from a different direction and really for a 12-year-old kid wasn't what you, you were thinking of. But then the, this thing called the ground level comic as opposed to an underground sort of showed up. There was Richard and Wendy Peeney's ElfQuest, which was, they self-published at the beginning. And then there was Dave Sim with Cerebus. And the comic book store network began. And all of a sudden, there was an alternative way to get your comics to people without having to sell to big, corrupt magazine distributors and try and sell through the local pharmacy. And that alternative way was self-publishing and then and then delivering them to comic shops? As the comic book store network was starting to establish itself then. So there were comic book stores as distinct from the corner variety store where you'd buy your comics, which is where I bought my comics until the late 70s or early 80s. Till about 1981, I was buying comic books at the local variety store because that's the only place to get them. But then the collector's market started to become more important and the, coll- and the comic book stores couldn't be properly serviced by these distributors. They were sending them ripped comics. They would, they would skip issues. They would, for, a collect- for collectors, this was not doable. So a guy named Phil Suling started a distribution company called Seagate. And Seagate became the first direct sale distributor. And all of a sudden, there was a market where the distributors would buy the comic books from you outright and sell them to the stores. So you didn't have to print 100,000 copies. You could print 3,000 copies because you knew what your orders were. 
And then the comic book stores would sell them and you would get straight to your audience. It was almost the internet of its day before the internet. You know, it was, it cut out a lot of the middlemen. So all of a sudden, black and white independent comics became a thing. Everybody who wanted to do comics suddenly was publishing their own in their basements. This, I was living in my parents' basement in Code St. Luke, publishing these comics. I published, you know, we started, I started a publishing company called Matrix Graphics Series at first, and then it later changed to Matrix Comics. I don't know why I didn't call it Matrix Comics from the beginning, but so we did North Guard 1. You know, Gabrielle, I wrote it. Gabrielle Morissette drew it. And then would you just approach Seagate with what you've published? Seagate or? and Diamond. There were a lot of competitive distributors then. There was a good dozen of them. Okay. And you would um, you would solicit them. You would send them information about the comic. You would send them some flyers. You would send them some posters. This was in the 80s. This was in the 80s, yeah. They were remarkably easy to sell to. You didn't have to show them very much. Every distributor had to buy everything because the other guy would get it if he didn't, and then it might become a competitive advantage. Just before this, I should add, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Boys showed up. Oh. And they their first black and white comic became this underground hit because it was just it was really a parody of Daredevil. It wasn't meant to be anything special, and somehow it became this huge thing, and people were making lots of money through the comic book store network. Mm-hmm. And that's when it blew up. And then for several years, you could sell a lot of copies of black and white comics. It became like the junk bond market of its day. So you'd send it to the distributors. They would buy it from you. They'd send it to the comic book stores and you could get a following. And, you know, we did pretty well at the beginning. I mean, we sold 11,000 copies of the first North Guard, which, you know, was quite low by the standards of the day. But by today's standards, that's, you know, approaching the bottom level of some DC and Marvel books, you know. For sure. You know, um, some publishers that were just churning out collectible junk were selling 50,000 copies of cheap black and white comics. Wow. So there was a lot of this going on. And it was a very heady time, but it blew up in the end. For one, it didn't really help you if you were doing quality stuff because quality stuff takes time. And we were often late and you would get shoved off the racks by the, you know, the stuff that was supposed to be collectible and expensive. And then when it blew up, our sales collapsed. But in the meantime, we'd produced four or five issues of Northgard. And we were taking what I think was more, we were taking a realistic approach, uh, kind of an Alan Moore. I was very influenced by Alan Moore at the beginning, like by his original Marvel Man or Miracle Man, whatever you call it, series. My my favorite superhero story of all time. It was, reading that, I used to buy the original British magazine, Warrior, at my local comic shop. The first comic shop I ever went to was Nova Bookstore in Montreal. And it was half comics and half science fiction. When I started reading Warrior, Every, the last piece clicked into place for me for Northgard. Miracle Man, uh, well, Marvel Man had that final element that I was missing that I wasn't sure that, that made it different. You know, it was this attempt to do a realistic superhero, to sort of take a take on it that was more like a thriller and more about, more like what it would be like in the real world to have a superhero. In those days, that was new. Now it's been, that, that has been exhausted. And that's because of Alan Moore that's kind of been exhausted because yes. he did that. This is, for our listeners, this predates Watchmen. By several years and and Dark Knight too. So when I started doing that, it was something new and innovative. But after the fifth issue, we disappeared for a couple of years and I was sending it around to various publishers trying to get them to pick it up. And by then they were going, well, this isn't anything new, Mark. Everybody's doing this now. And which, which I dispute. I mean, it was, it wasn't just realistic in the sense of, you know, oh, look, he's great. This, look at this crazy guy in the superhero costume. It was also realistic in the sense of people's reactions to things in the lifestyle the characters led in the fact that it was a realistic Canada, um, that, reflected the Montreal I lived in and the country I lived in and the reality of how people thought it wasn't sort of a comic book reality of Canada. Plus, you you sort of created the impetus and the need for a superhero in the story through realistic means like science and corporate espionage. Like he was backed 
by a, yeah. by a corporate by a corporation. In retrospect, I thought my science was slightly more realistic than the average comic book science, but in fact, it really wasn't. Oh, okay. You know, um, because you know, I was talking about loopholes in the fabric of in the laws of thermodynamics, which somebody mocked mercilessly in a review, but. The Uniband is no more or less possible than the Green Lantern's power ring. But that's okay. I mean, that's what a genre is about. And superheroes violate the laws of physics. All of them do, even Batman. So I get that's just something you have to accept and move on. You know, and if you're spending a lot of time trying to make your superhero obey the laws of physics, I think you're wasting your time. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is a waste of time now in, in the sense that we've explored a lot of that, what it would be like if superheroes were really real. I think I'd always do it at a certain realistic level, but but I liked um, Kurt Busiek's approach in Astro, Astro City, you know, where the human interactions were realistic, but the superhero background was pure superheroes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Tell our listeners what Northgard is about, because although you're key to history... I'm I'm sure many of them have never have have never read it. Well, I thank you for saying I'm a key to history. I appreciate the thought. I know people have read Northgard. I don't think it had anywhere near the impact of uh, Captain Canuck, for example, because Captain Canuck is an archetype in, in many ways. He's the he's the pure superhero, and Northgard was the opposite of that. So I think that's what I was trying for. Northgard was a young guy named Philip Wise who was a comic book fan, uh, which again was something new. I mean, it had been done before, all the way back to Barry Allen reading the Flash comics. It wasn't a new idea, but my idea was he got recruited by this company called PAC, the Progressive Allied Canadian Technologies Corporation, which um, was this idealistic company that wasn't just about making a profit. They were about making the world a better place. And they took that seriously. And they discovered, while trying to find out about ordinary, everyday corporate malfeasance and scandals, they stumbled across this right-wing American conspiracy, this group of proto-fascists who wanted to basically take over North America and turn it into a giant uh, right-wing theocracy. And they wanted to start with Canada because they believed it had been divinely promised to the United States and should never have been an independent country in the first place. And they called themselves Mandes for Manifest Destiny, which was the American ideal that only America could meddle in the affairs of, of the Americas. Only the United States had the right to, and European powers were excluded. I think, you know, I was 23 years old, and maybe I could have been a little more subtle about that stuff, but, in, you know, I think it still holds up. That's that's also, I was reflecting the times. I mean, it was the Ronald Reagan presidency. It was America invading Grenada. It was, there was a lot of stuff going on that I was dubious about politically. And I, that's where this, a lot of this was coming from. For sure. And I also wanted to show a Canadian superhero who in no way was anti-American because I had American characters, but who wasn't kind of a suck up, if you know what I mean. He was about Canada and not about Canada as just being the good buddy to the United States. His creation as a superhero, how he becomes a superhero, isn't the typical origin story because he he approaches the corporation. No, they approach him, actually. They they approached him first, but then when he decides that he wants to express it... As in a in a superhero way, he pitches them on the idea of him being a super. That's right, and that's where they thought he was insane. Yeah, yeah, because no normal people don't put on skin tight suits and run around in masks and run around. And normally in comics, it's it's of course you're going to become a superhero. Like that's what you do if you get powers. You're just going to put on a costume and start running around fighting crime. And everybody else and most of the people around him were saying, you know, you've been reading too many Batman comics and. And, which was probably true, but it was the only way he could make sense of it. They wanted to give him what was obviously 
they, they gave him a device called the Uniband, which was this hexagonal shaped silver gadget that fit over his upper arm. And I'll let you in on a secret. I came up with this one day. I had a box from a big trilight light bulb that was shaped like this. And I was just fooling around with it and stuck it on my arm. And I looked at it and went, huh. And um, the earliest iterations of it had little fins that popped up in the back when it was going to fire a power beam. But Gabrielle eventually got tired of drawing the fins and just eliminated them. That's where the idea for it came from. And of course, I was influenced by uh, Iron Man and more by Green Lantern's power ring. I was always more... I've always been interested in characters who have external power sources. Uh, I have, I had a harder time accepting superheroes with natural powers. I mean, that's kind of silly, but it's sort of, it made more sense to me this way. And it also made more sense to me that Philip did not necessarily become a competent warrior overnight just because he had a super weapon. He had to learn and struggle. And as the story progressed, he never got really good at it, which I think was something else was, was relatively new. I mean, even Peter Parker, you know, he was a nerdy guy, he gets bitten by a spider, and all of a sudden, you know, he's got all these abilities, he's got the agility, he, he's cracking wise, he's he never, you know, he... he Getting the girls he, eventually. Eventually, although he was always... But it was more the physical abilities. Like, Philip was an ordinary guy. He didn't suddenly become, you know, a Olympic-class athlete overnight just because he had a super weapon. And, uh, and that's partly why I introduced the character Fleur de Lis later, because she is an Olympic-level athlete. She's a gold medalist in Taekwondo, and she, she, I introduced her because someone had to show this guy how not to get hit in the head, you know, when he's firing his power beam forwards. So Train him. Be, yeah. Be the stick. Yeah, exactly. His, uh, but again, you know, when you're, you know, Daredevil, Matt Murdock was learning this from the time he was 10 mm-hmm. and had super senses. In addition to this, Philip is like 23 or 24 years old, is a com- like an average comic book fan. He's not going to become a star athlete or, you know, skilled hand-to-hand fighter overnight, if ever, you know, because it's just not who he is. And the personal uh, interplay between them is interesting to play with because she is that yes. and he's not. So there's that there's that disparity that you... Yeah, that's it. And I mean, and it was also, I mean, at the time I thought it was kind of cool to make the the female character the really kick-ass athlete and the, the guy the kind of lamer that way they have, she eventually gained this little this electric powered flirtulous taser but it, it's it's not or you know it's nothing like the uniband it's strictly a electric shock device right. it, it was fun that way i mean it was fun i mean to to be you know since nor, nor, since northgard is philip wise i was also maybe unconsciously playing with the jewish schlemiel thing you know he was <laughs> yeah. openly jewish which i which was important to me also that that i actually made him you know i was trying not to be the do the mary sue thing, you know, and make him myself. But like everybody, especially at that age, I think I was Mary suing him a bit or Marty Stu or whatever you call it. But I wanted him to reflect what I knew, you know, and, and the person I was. And so I put back my background into him without making him me. I mean, he's not me in that he's not an artist. He's not a writer. He doesn't do those things. So there, right there is a, a huge difference. Hmm. But in other ways, he, he had some of my background, but then so did many of the other characters you kind of sprinkle it around in the other you know all over the comic you know i think in that regard we 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 got a lot of positive feedback about it we got positive feedback about the tension between philip and manon deschamps who was fleur de lis and about the tension between philip and the people at pact and then we brought in uh the red uh, the uh, steel chameleon character who was a mercenary for hire type of character and uh who is actually owned by richard cumley i wrote i wrote a couple of adventures of the character for 
Richard's magazine called Star Rider and the Peace Machine, which were never published. Okay. <clears throat> Those were some of my first comic stories. And I just liked the character so much, I decided to integrate him into Northgard. I asked Richard permission, and he said, sure, you know. That's so, awesome. which Richard always and often does, which he, that, he's such a great guy that way. It was Richard that sort of inspired you with the whole Canadiana aspect of this. So, where do you see your place in Canadian comics and Northgard's place in Canadian comics? Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, it's not really for me to say where my place is. I don't think, but what I wanted to do, I had a kind of grandiose ideas. You know, I. I I was all over the place, and I was publishing other people's comics, too. I was publishing Bernie Moreau's The Jam, and Marianne Bramstrup and Ian Carr did The Dragon Star. We had a number of comics, and I was I saw myself kind of as the savior of Canadian comic books. I wanted to I wanted to do, in many ways, what, what Fadi Hakim is doing with Chapter House now. It really was a wasteland. There was nothing Canadian being published. You know, there were Canadians doing comics. There was John Byrne doing comics. There was Dave Sim doing Cerebus and, you know. Was Alpha Flight a thing? Alpha Flight existed. I created Northgard before Alpha Flight came around, Mm. or certainly before they had their own comic. Yeah. But in the interim between the plans getting together, Marvel launched Alpha Flight just before I started working on Northgard. And they got several issues out before Northgard came out. I actually made a joking reference to it in the first issue. I have, there's one scene where Philip's deciding whether or not he's going to become a superhero. So he goes home and he pulls three comic books off his rack. He, you know, an issue of Captain Canuck, an issue of Firestorm, and an issue of Alpha Flight. Mm. And Firestorm was thrown in there because he's sort of the prototypical teenage superhero. And I made a reference to it. And then someone asked him later in the story, what are you going to call yourself in French? Northgard doesn't translate. And he goes, how about Gardien? And he goes, no, I can't use that name. And, uh, you know, because so, Alpha Flight's leader's name is the Guardian. Well, Guardian, so, yeah. So he's always been shrouded in controversy as a direct ripoff of, Cap- of Captain Canada. Well, I never saw that. I never okay. saw him as a direct ripoff. For one, I know that John Byrne created at least the visual of the character in fanzines when he was young. You're, there's only so many configurations of a maple leaf you can put on a costume. That's true. I always liked vindicator guardian whatever he's called this week's costume yeah i always it was it's reminded me of the 1972 team canada hockey sweater it yeah. was you know that half maple leaf wrapping around the body yeah. i thought it was beautiful i of all the alpha flight characters he was always my favorite and i never understood why Byrne decided to kill him mm-hmm. in the first place and i never thought Byrne had a handle on those characters john Byrne is john Byrne, and i have respect his place in comics history but i i never he, I don't think he knew where he was going with them, and 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 you could feel it in the comic. It was always kind of schizophrenic, mm-hmm. and and it didn't, to my mind, it was always written and drawn, or almost always by people who weren't in Canada, and you could feel it. There was always something wrong. And it's for me, it only started to make sense when they sort of connected it with X Men and the Weapon X program yeah. and Wolverine and his. Yeah. Canadian Association. I, I mean, I wasn't reading it by then. That's when they first appeared. I mean, you know, Vindicator, first Guardian, Vindicator, Weapon. Yeah, he, yeah, he was called Weapon X when he first showed. No, he was Weapon Alpha mm-hmm. was, was Vindicator's first name. And then he became Vindicator and then he became Guardian. And then I think he became Vindicator again and his wife became Guardian. And it, it was very confusing. This is the kind of stuff that drives readers away. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and not that's... to diss Alpha Flight, I'm glad Marvel has a Canadian superhero team, mm. but they never knew what to do with it. And when they were starting to make fun of it, you know, then I just thought it was silly. Yeah, yeah. And that's everything that Northgard isn't. Like, you're trying to 
boost up Canadian Canadian comics and yeah I mean you can be too serious and I think I probably was a little bit overwrought in in places I look back now and you know like everybody I cringe at some of the stuff I wrote but at the same time you know you have to take your work for what it was at the time and move on and and you know accept your work for for and accept yourself for who you were at the time and who you are now you continued with the Canadian ideas with Canadiana right yes that was actually came out of left field. I'm friends with a comic book artist in Prince Edward Island named Sandy Carruthers. And he has a friend named Jeff Allward. Sandy is best known. He was the original artist on the Men in Black comic, which oh, okay. was a small press black and white comic book. Malibu, right? From First from Aircell, then from Malibu, when Malibu bought Aircell. And it's very convoluted. And then, and then Marvel bought Malibu. Anyway, to make a long story short, Sandy drew the comic mm-hmm. and... Um, no, he didn't get a penny from the movies or anything. He got, you know, an invitation to the premiere in Los Angeles, but no plane ticket. But he and I met at the predecessor of these conventions, you know, at uh, the predecessor of the, uh, fan expo. the fan expo. What was that called? It was called Comics Expo, I think, or Comics Expo Toronto, Toronto Comics Expo. Okay. And uh, which were started in the early to mid 90s. We became really good friends. And we also worked together. Actually, even before that, we worked together on the Captain Canuck daily newspaper strip. Because okay. Richard uh, was in the early, did an early 90s revival of Captain Canuck, did a couple of issues of the comic and then sold it as a comic strip to some small press, new, some small town papers like the Guelph Mercury. And I think the Ottawa Citizen for, for a time, too. And... I, I, it wasn't the Tom Evans version of Captain Canuck. It was a different version. And Sandy and his and Jeff were drawing it. And I wrote about a month and a half, two months worth of episodes. And then we became, we got in touch through that and uh, decided we wanted to work together on various things. And he one day pitched this idea to me. This character, Canadiana, had sort of popped into his head. And a female Canadian superhero. I said, I don't think I should do any more Canadian superheroes. I'm going to get completely typecast. And he said, I really want to work with you on this and it'll be fun. And I said, okay. And then it was really liberating working on something that I hadn't created because I had no preconceptions of what it was supposed to be. He had a, Sandy had sort of a rough idea of who she was. He'd drawn a few pages. He known, he knew she grew up with parents who were kind of weird culty types and had grown, she grew up in some kind of weird cult commune. And that's all he knew. And that she was, her name was Canadiana and that her powers included flight and the ability to kind of pop through wormholes. Mm-hmm. So I took that, ran with it, and I was writing it as a webcomic. So I didn't even necessarily know where I was going from day to day. I would write one episode and Sandy would draw it and we and he put it up and I would write the next one. And it kind of started to grow organically and we had a really good time with it. You know, we were playing again with the conventions. We decided she was absolutely not going to be, this was the you know, early 2000s, around 2003, 2004, which was the height of the, well, the image stuff, image was still going strong. It was the height of the pornograph, porn, pornization of superheroines, you know, with the breasts bigger than their heads and, you know, and, and yeah. you know, the, 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 the skin tight skin fetish costumes. And we said, we we're going to not do that. We we're going to do the exact opposite, you know, and we're going to do a female character who's a person in her own right who doesn't have boobs bigger than their head, whose boobs are not the primary focus of the comic book, and who's, you know, an interesting character. And lots of interesting stuff came up. She somehow became this kind of avatar of Canada. This, this, she's the avatar of 
there's a tarot of lands of different countries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the tarot, you know, there's the tarot, the king of eagles, which is the United States, and the king of bears, which is Russia. And Canada's avatar in this tarot is the queen of trees. And her role is to be balanced. Here, I was sort of doing the opposite of Northgard. I was trying to bring, I was trying to mythologize Canada, not to demythologize superheroes, but to do the opposite, to mythologize our history and our famous personalities like, you know, I have um, Tom Thompson, the famous painter who died under mysterious circumstances. He's a character in the storyline. It was, it was, it was fun, but we got, you know, we did it for over, we did 40 or 50 pages of it as a webcomic, but we eventually had to stop because uh, Sandy and Jeff just, you know, couldn't keep going. I, I mean, for me, it wasn't a big deal to write one episode a week because, you know, it was, it's, you know, it was an hour, a couple hours. But for them, it was a it was a big investment of time, especially because it was in color. And we brought in a few guest artists here and there, but it petered out. But we do want to finish it and collect it one day and keep her going. You know, we we really like her. And in a way, your most well known character, Northgard, is has been mythologized because uh, I came to it, and a lot of people came to it through Canada Posts. Yes, uh, they did a. It was the first. A superhero stamp issue in Canada, and they they've since done another one with Superman. They did that's super, right. They did Superman stamps in I think 2013. That's right. Uh, I think it was for the was it 2013? I don't remember when it was, but yeah, they did that recently in 1995. They came up with um, Canadian superhero stamp series. It, it originated with my friend John Bell. I, I published a book that John had written called Canuck Comics. In, I published that in the late 80s. It was a history to that point of Canadian comic books. He pitched that to the National Archives, and they did a museum show about it. And that museum show then became a digital museum show when the internet showed up. And then that inspired... No, I beg your pardon. The postage stamps were first. The museum show inspired Canada Post to do a series of Canadian postage superhero postage stamps. So they did the famous wartime characters, Johnny Canuck, Nelvana of the Northern Lights. They did Captain Canuck. And then they needed another character to round it out. And they, I mean, I have no illusions. They needed a female character. They needed a character for, who represented Quebec. They also needed a more modern take on yes. the Canadian superhero. Right. Well, they had Captain Canuck for, you know, to some degree. Yeah. They picked Fleur de Lis because she was female and Quebecois at the same time. Iconic, iconically very interesting. And it, it, it sort of fit in all ways. And, and of course, John promoted her as the logical character in the series. And so, so the the stamp was actually Fleur de Lis. Northgar didn't appear in the stamp series, but he appeared on the day uh, of issue. On the day of issue, the the first day issue yeah. collectible envelope. Yeah, yeah. Which which I have. I, right. I, I have that. You, you, if anybody's interested, that's visible on my website at shamebloom.com and northgar.com. Um, uh, there's links to it on those sites. It's it's quite something, you know, because, you know, Les Barker, <clears throat> beg your pardon, Les Barker, who had created Johnny Canuck, was still alive at that time. And I got to meet him and spend time with him. And wow. it was, what was that, like? that was something else. You know, that's when I started to feel like I was really part of that history that you're talking about. Because mm. I'd read about these guys and I'd never met them. And I was lucky enough to meet some of them while they were still around. Mm -hmm. I mean, and uh, some of them are still with us, thankfully. But Les was, you know, he did Johnny Canuck and then he worked, went to work in the States and then he became a... Um, a stand-up comedian and had a long career as a comedian and entertainer on cruise ships. What was he like as a person just talking to him? Like, very high energy, okay. very garrulous and friendly. And, you know, again, a lot like Richard, fell into comics by accident. Mm -hmm. It never intended to be in comics, but, you know, he was, you know, a 16-year-old kid. All the other, all the grown-ups were, you know, fighting the war. 
and he ran into a guy in a lobby who had a bunch of comic book artwork or a bunch of comic books from the new bell features and you know and the, the guy asked him what do you think of these and he wasn't impressed with them and I, the guy said i bet you so i think you bet you think you could do better and he said yeah i can mm -hmm. so he started work he drew some he created johnny canuck and started drawing uh comic books at the age of 16. That's that's amazing. And and you know I have a long long interview I conducted with him that bounced around from here and there. It was supposed to go uh, in Alter Ego magazine and it was supposed to go in the Johnny Canuck book that Rachel Ritchie published and it's it's never been published. So I would love for it to get out there one day. Awesome. Hopefully it will because yeah. Now that Chapter House is around, they've they they're releasing they're re-releasing the Northgard uh, series in a in a yep. compendium. That's right. And they're they're going full force with the Canadian comics. They have yes. Captain Canuck already. They're bringing in new characters like our past guest, Jason Liu's Pitiful Human Lizard. Which is a brilliant... Jason is a genius. That's such a brilliant comic book. It's so... It's funny and it's still superhero adventure. It's great. I recommend it really highly. And I would... You know, I was saying that long before I knew we'd be published by the same company. Absolutely. Now you're you're here again. You're part of that history again yeah. that you that you first uh, and, discovered. And in it's 95. great. It's great because I missed it a lot. I've been out of it for a long time. I write science fiction too, and I've been published here and there. I've edited some books, but I've never fully left comics. But I haven't really done them much in the last few years. You know, for various. What have you been doing instead? Well, I've been working full time. I've been, you know, I worked at McGill University as a media relations officer. I worked at Medical Research Institute doing the same thing. And then we moved to Ottawa. It's a struggle because, you know, for a long time, doing Canadian comics did not pay. You know, I mean, it's doing independent comics at all did not pay. It was effectively a hobby, even if you were spending your whole, you know, working on a career at it, you know, because... It wasn't like working for Marvel or DC, you know, where you'd get a paycheck, you know, for turning the work in. It was, you got a little chunk of whatever percentage you were making. And when I was publishing comic books, you know, I was not necessarily the best person in the world to be doing business as such, to be publishing. I did it because I felt, you know, strongly that it was important, but, you know, I didn't have the, all the necessary um, management skills, let's say, you know, and financial skills to do it. At the time, you know, it wasn't like you could get a Canada Council grant to publish comics. Now you can in theory, but at the time it was certainly in English and French, it's been French comics in Quebec have always been different. They've always had that a certain level of social acceptance that comics in the English speaking world haven't for some reason. Mm -hmm. We finally broke through that. I mean, the difference between the comic book world in 2015 and the comic book world in 1984 when I broke in is night and day. You know, I mean, and, and 1984 was so different from 1974 that it was unrecognizable. The number of women in the field, which is just so nice to see. I mean, it was like, it was this all testosterone wasteland for a long time. Mm -hmm. And you can't have a viable art form without half the human race. It's yeah. just not possible. And you can't have a viable artistic community without half the human race. And you can't have it without representing other people. I mean, you know, uh, you and I were chatting before the show about how, I keep coming back to this, but how the business, the comic book business in the States was a particularly Jewish business. A lot of the original creators and the guys who published them and in many cases ripped them off were all Jewish. And yet they were afraid to have openly Jewish characters. Will Eisner's on record saying he, you know, always thought of the, of the spirit as Jewish, but he never said so out loud. And 
and and you can imagine then for people who weren't represented in comics, you know, uh, you know, people of color, you know, uh, gay people, people with disabilities, it's it, it, it just they weren't really represented at all for a long time, either in the characters in the comics or in the community itself. I don't want to be the I I dislike I despise the term politically correct. I don't usually use it because I think it's a it's a weapon to beat people over the heads with, just like social justice warrior, you know. But I don't want to be politically correct, but these these corrections needed to happen. We needed to change the business that way. And it and it, it's so gratifying to see that it's happened. Mm-hmm. It's so gratifying to go to a comic book convention where more than 50% of the attendees are women and where you know, it's not just a very small segment of the population being represented. Mm-hmm. And you're important to Canadian comic history, but you're also important to fan history because you published Orion. Orion was sort of a fanzine I did before I got into comics. It was, I did two issues in the early 80s, eight, 1980 and 81-ish, 81, actually 80, 81 and 82. Uh, I, I was going to do them originally the way most fanzines were done in the day, I was going to type them on a typewriter and photocopy them or even still mimeograph was still being used like the old fanzines going back to the 50s and, and 40s. But somewhere along the way, I was at uh, college, you know, CJEP in Quebec, and I was working on the school paper and we had access to a typesetting machine, um, which was unheard of. And all a typesetting machine was, was really a very large, very complicated word processor that would spit out typeset text. So I had access to it. I paid for the use and I was able to typeset about half the magazine. Mostly Richard, I interviewed Richard Cumley and that was mostly his interview. And then the student government one day sold the the typesetting machine out from under us. (laughs) So we came in one day in the newspaper and we suddenly didn't have a typesetting machine. And we were looking around and going, where's the typesetting machine? It messed up the newspaper, but it also messed me up because then I had a, a magazine that was half typeset. Whoa. So before people had computers and laser printers, we're talking 1980 80 here, you know, yeah. so home computers were brand new and nobody had laser printers. I certainly didn't have access to either. So I went, had to go out to a typesetting shop and have the rest of it typeset for a lot of money just, wow. and then did the second one the same way. It was a lot of fun. I did reviews. I did interviews. I interviewed Marv Wolfman and Chris Claremont for the second issue. Wow. Had a Teen Titans cover by, uh, by Jeff Isherwood and, um, had a lot of, the, I mean, the Northgard first appeared in there, drawn by Jeff Isherwood, just as a, it was a lot of fun. Doing fanzines is fun, but it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, even to this day, you know, because you've got to print it. And, you know, nobody does fanzines with any expectation of making any money. Uh-huh. So I decided to kind of transfer it into doing, into, um, into comics. I started my own comic company, Matrix Comics. Awesome. And then I went back to doing Orion, like, 25 years later as a webzine for a few issues. That's awesome. So the, the, there was tw- literally 24 years between Orion 2 and Orion 3. So on your website, some of the newer Orions as a webzine are, are available? Or? They're linked. Yeah, they're actually on a website called ezines.org. ezines.org. Yeah, and uh, that's a site where people can upload. It's, it's a right, really nice service, but there's also links on my site. Uh, that will take you there. And if there aren't, I'll make sure I put some on. Nice. Yeah. So now that North Northgard has sort of been, you know, they breathe, Chapter House has breathed new life into it. Yes. What 
what are your hopes? How did you get hooked up with them? Actually, and what are your hopes for it now? Well, that was Richard Cumley again, uh, which seems to be, you know, um, when when Richard started working with Fadi uh, Hakim, who's the owner of Chapter House, he mentioned him to me. I was already in the midst. I'm, I was in the midst of doing a Kickstarter. The Kickstarter is still coming because um, the way Chapter House works is it's similar to Image Comics in that your own comic is your own and you produce it and Chapter House publishes it, but you're still responsible for some of the, the costs and so forth. So I still have to get the funds together to do it. But but basically, Richard put me in touch with Fadi. I contacted Fadi and literally overnight, Fadi said he wanted to do it and was ready to go and was putting ads together. And you know, I couldn't keep up with him, you know. So um, it was, he was so excited to hear from me that I, I, I was, I was, I practically fell out of my chair. So are you? Are you nervous now? Because it's going, and you, it is. You I have... am nervous. I am nervous because it's got a momentum of its own. I've got. I'm going to be doing the Kickstarter in the next week or two because because we gotta. And uh, the you know the, it's been sitting while we you know while Fadi and I worked out what we were going to be doing, and and of course we're talking about doing a new series as well. But that's still in the future because Gabrielle Morissette's still tied up on some other projects, and of course Gabby co-owns the, pro- the property, so I can't do it without him. Yeah, for sure. And um, I've had ideas and I've had a board of restarts of Northgard so many times. So I, I stopped even thinking about it for a while because for a long time, I didn't even know what to do. I didn't have another story in mind. So I, decided, I, I said, if I don't have a good story, I'm not going to do it. Now I do have, I think, some very good stories and interesting directions for the character. I just have to sit down and write them. And also, I've been talking to Fadi, um, you know, me and Sandy and Jeff Alward uh, did our own take on Captain Canuck as well in the early nine, in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, Richard kindly allowed us to do a, our own one shot called the new original Captain Canuck. So, which has nothing to do with the continuity that Chapter House is doing, but Fadi's interested in that too. You know, we have to finish it again, you know, so we did one issue. It was our own reboot and relaunch of Captain Canuck. So, which is something I also always wanted to do. And I'm hoping now that I'm affiliated with Chapter House that I'll get to write Captain Canuck also. I mean, I've basically given up trying to um, not be typecast as the Canadian superhero guy because I guess that's who I am. And uh, it's important. You and, have to embrace it. Uh, well, I, I am embracing it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's my niche, you know? I want to do Canadiana too, because even though they're all wearing Canadian flags, they're very different characters. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all very different. And if, if you don't mind me plugging something else. Yeah, um, for sure. I, I, um, I've done some other projects though. I did a, I just came off a, a book project with Claude La Lumiere, who's a friend of mine from Montreal from way back. Claude's a very well-known science fiction and fantasy writer in Canada. And he's edited a number of really great anthologies, including um, Open Space, the anthology of Canadian science fiction, and uh, Island Dreams, Montreal Writers of the Fantastic, which I was in because I was still living in Montreal in those days. And we just co-edited Tesseract 19. It's the 19th edition of the Tesseract's anthology series of Canadian science fiction. But this one is titled Superhero Universe. So it's all prose science fiction stories. Wow. Which again, uh, is something that is more or less, was would have been more or less unthinkable 20 years ago. I mean, it just wouldn't have happened. There wouldn't have been enough stories to fill the book. There wouldn't have been enough writers. We received 224 submissions of stories. And of those, something like well over 50% were publishable which is unheard of, unheard of. Usually you get 10% stories are passable and 10% of those are publishable. Mm. And we got, 
we we were pulling our hair out because we had so many good stories and we couldn't fit them all in the book. That's amazing. When yeah. does that come out? That comes out in uh, the spring of the ebook comes out, I believe, in the spring of 2016, and the paperback book comes out in the uh, in early summer, I believe. Don't hold me to that. That comes out from Edge Publishing in Calgary. That's awesome. And um, and so it was. That was that was really fun to do. Cool. That that's amazing. Um, I. I want to get you back to Fan Expo and in front yes. of the in front of the fans so that you can continue signing and meeting Thank other you. people. I don't want to hog you. So I think uh, I want to sort of uh, ask you where people can find you and when this Kickstarter starts. I want all of our listeners and the people listening now to donate because if you haven't read Northgard, I mean it's good. You you have to support it and uh, make sure that it gets uh, it gets published and we see new adventures and that sort of thing. I appreciate that. I really appreciate you having me on the show and I ha- I appreciate your support. Um the Kickstarter will be publicized on the Northgard website and my website, which is shamebloom.com and there's northgard.com and Northgard has a page on Facebook. It'll it'll be Easy to find, believe me. Can people follow you on Twitter? Yes, I'm at Mark Shainbloom, M-A-R-K-S-H-A-I-N-B-L-U-M on Twitter, and um, and Mark Shainbloom on Facebook. Nice. We're also on Twitter at uh, Speech Bubble Pod. We also have a Facebook fan page under uh, Speech Bubble, and you can uh, listen to all our episodes on iTunes or on the Never Sleeps Network website at Never Sleeps Network. Dot com. Until next episode, thank you all. This has been Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 